Acts chapter 7, please. We'll see if Ken has any corrections for us here in chapter 7. But thank you, brother. I had no idea I was singing that wrong. I mean, I have the scriptures open. I'm looking at it, and I'm not even reading what I'm singing. It's probably a lesson somewhere in that. Acts chapter 7, we're going through this book on Sunday nights, making some observations along the way on what it means to be a church in action. We concluded chapter 6 last week where in a scene that is reminiscent of how they treated our Lord in, in, during his trial, Stephen is now have false witness brought against him. He's brought before the council. And essentially he's standing trial for preaching Christ. He's preaching Christ's doctrine as well. And this has infuriated those that are hearing it. They have brought him before the council. And as he's sitting there before the council, remember at the end of chapter 6, his face was, as it were, the face of an angel. I find this very fascinating, as we talked about last time, because they're accusing Stephen of blaspheming Moses. And when Moses went up the mountain to receive the law from God the second time and came down, his face was shining. And it's not saying the same thing exactly, but I think that's the intent, that there was a a heavenly radiance about Stephen's face. And I believe God is rebuking the council. They're saying, you're blaspheming Moses, and yet Stephen is taking on the same honor that God gave to Moses. And it, was, it should have shook them up enough to go, wait a minute, what are we doing? But you know how people can be, and they can be so dug in in their rejection that it's hard to bring them to see things. And so they accuse him of blaspheming not only Moses, but the law, the temple, that Jesus was going to change the customs which Moses delivered, that Jesus had said the temple is going to be destroyed. And in the face of this opposition, his face takes on this appearance. And now he's sitting there, God's making it clear that this man is from God, just as Moses was from God, and yet they're going to miss it. And so we leave chapter 6, we come to chapter 7 tonight, Stephen is there before the council, his face as it had been the face of an angel. The word angel means a messenger. Think about the word evangelist. What word do you have in the middle of evangelist? Angel. It's, what's an evangelist? It's a messenger of the good news of the gospel. And I'm saying all that to say, he has a face, as it were, of an angel. Here's Stephen. He is a messenger from God. This is God's man for this hour. Stephen has been selected by God to be the one to bring the message of God before the council yet again. This is a very important chapter for reasons that I won't get into tonight. But this is a very important chapter as we see these similarities between Christ and Stephen and the fact that God is giving this council another chance. He he said, I'll give you one sign. I'm going to rise again. They didn't believe it. And here we are, and God's going to give them the message again. And they're going to have a chance to turn and to repent 
But what's going to happen, I'm, I'll just go ahead and get ahead of myself a little bit because I'm too excited. I just can't hide it. Amen, amen, amen. What's going to happen? They're going to get this opportunity to repent. They're not. God's going to turn to the Gentiles. So this is all very important here that we're studying. Verse 1, look at what it says. Then said the high priest, are these things so? What is the high priest referring to? Stephen, are you blaspheming Moses and God? Are you blaspheming the temple and the law? Are you preaching that Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and change the customs that Moses delivered us? Are you and your sect of the Nazarenes standing in opposition to Moses, the law, and the temple? And you have to know that going into this chapter because that's how Stephen is going to respond. He's not just randomly preaching, but he's also answering the question. Now, let's remember what Jesus told His 12 disciples while He was still with them physically upon the earth. In Matthew 10, 16-20, Jesus said, Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves, but beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils, and they will scourge you in their synagogues. And ye shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. But listen to what Jesus said next. When they deliver you up, take no thought how or what ye shall speak. For it shall be given you in that same hour what ye shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. That's what we're starting to see here. This is happening with Stephen. He's been brought before the council. You see... Stephen did not wake up this morning and decide, you know, I think I'm going to go do great wonders and miracles amongst the people with the hope that it'll infuriate those from the synagogue enough that they will take me captive, set me before the council, and I can finally preach this sermon that I've had prepared. That's not what's happening here. This isn't planned. But what follows here in chapter 7 is the Spirit of God speaking through Stephen to the council. God is giving Stephen exactly what is needed in this hour. And let's not forget how Stephen was already a man full of faith and of the power of the Holy Ghost. Why is that significant? Because he was already a vessel meet for the Master's use. And I don't think we should overlook that. God could use Stephen because Stephen was usable. Can God use you in this manner? Well, we get Stephen's answers in verses 2 through 53. And this really is a wonderful sermon. And he calls them brethren after the flesh. In essence, Stephen, what he's going to do here is he's going to give them a brief Old Testament survey of Israel's history. He's going to start with Abraham. He's going to make his way to the prophets. And he's going to make his way all the way to Christ. And what I've decided to do with this chapter is not get bogged down in this chapter because we could spend a year or more just in this chapter if we broke down all the things that Stephen is talking about. One reason I don't want to get bogged down here is because we're about to discuss this on Sunday morning in Genesis, this stuff about Abraham. And so there's no sense in really covering twice because I'll probably reference Acts 7 when we do. Um, But we are going to read this chapter in segments. I'll make some quick observations along the way, 
and then once we get towards the end of the message, we'll have an application. So just bear with me. We are going to read every verse at some point tonight, um, So, because we are going verse by verse. Amen? All right, so keep in mind as we do this, Stephen is answering the charges against him. Are these things so? Now, with that, let's read about Abraham in verses 2 through 8. And he said, Men, brethren, and fathers, hearken. The God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Charon. And he said unto him, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and come into the land which I shall show thee. Then came he out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Charon. You'll see in Genesis it's Haran or or Haran. It just drops the C and removes an R. But this is a different pronunciation here, same place. And from thence, when his father was dead, he removed him into this land wherein ye now dwell. And he gave him none inheritance in it, no, not so much as to set his foot on. Yet he promised that he would give it to him for a possession and to his seed after him, when as yet he had no child. And God spake on this wise, that his seed should sojourn in a strange land, and that they should bring them into bondage and entreat them evil four hundred years. And the nation to whom they shall be in bondage will I judge, said God. And after that shall they come forth and serve me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begat Isaac and circumcised him the eighth day. And Isaac begat Jacob and Jacob begat the twelve patriarchs. So with Abraham, Stephen... I believe what we should get from this little section, Stephen is, as he's building his case here, he's letting them know God was at work in Abraham before there was ever a ceremonial law. God was at work in this man's life. God was at work before there was a tabernacle or a temple. God was at work before there was a man named Moses. Keep in mind the charges. And he's letting them know, God appeared unto Abraham. Of course, we know he was Abram at the time, but he he appeared unto Abraham. And God called Abraham to leave his country, his kindred, go to a land that God would show him. And so what was Abraham ultimately leaving behind? It was a life of idolatry. And again, we'll look at this more on Sunday mornings when we get there. But they were worshiping idols. Remember Joshua that, that famous passage, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Remember the context surrounding that. Joshua has everyone gathered around. And he says in, in verses 2 and 3 of Joshua 24, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood in, the old, in, in old time. That's not speaking about the flood of Noah. I believe that's referring to the flood of the Jordan River. But that's a whole other thing. And, and so he says, your fathers who dwelt on the other side of the flood, even Terah, and that's why we know it's not Noah's flood, Terah was after this. Even Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nacor, and they served other gods. And I took your father Abraham from the other side of the flood and led him throughout all the land of Canaan. I, I believe the flood is speaking of some river. It might actually be one over in Mesopotamia. But anyway, and with Abraham leaving behind a life of idolatry, God then gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. That was to be a reminder 
that God, and this is important here, it was to be a reminder that God was bringing the promised seed into the world one day. That was, that was the reminder. I, I shouldn't have to go into detail, but it should remind you, if you're circumcised, there's something on the way. And so God was going to bring the Messiah one day, and He gave him this covenant. It was going to have its fulfillment in Christ. So Stephen here, he is laying the foundation for how salvation will not come through Moses. It's not going to come through the law. It's not going to come through a building. And, and that's what Stephen is doing here. It's not going to be your sacrifices at some temple when your heart's not even right with God. And what did God say? I never wanted your sacrifice anyway. I, I, I needed Christ to come. Those things don't please me. Animal sacrifice, God said, they, they don't please me. They were just a shadow, a picture to keep people's minds focused on the fact that Jesus was coming one day. And in verse 8, Stephen shows how this was passed along to Abraham's son Isaac, Isaac's son Jacob, and Jacob begat the twelve patriarchs, which was Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Zebulon, Issachar, Dan, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Joseph, and Benjamin. And now Stephen shifts his attention to Joseph, who is one of the greatest types of Christ in the Old Testament, maybe the greatest. And, and we're still before the times of Moses here. We're before the law and the temple. And look at what he says about Joseph in verses 9 through 16. And the patriarchs moved with envy and sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him. And God delivered him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now there came a dearth over all the land of Egypt and Canaan and great affliction. And our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was corn in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And at the second time, Joseph was made known to his brethren, and Joseph's kindred was made known unto Pharaoh. Then sent Joseph and called his father Jacob to him, and all his kindred threescore and fifteen souls. So Jacob went down into Egypt and died, he and our fathers, and were carried over into Shechem, which is how you'll see it in the Old Testament, but, and laid in the sepulcher that Abraham bought for a sum of money of the sons of Emor, the father of Sichem. So we see of Joseph, the other 11 patriarchs sold him into slavery. He eventually ends up enslaved in Egypt. In verses 6 and 7, Stephen, he mentions how God had told Abraham that his offspring would sojourn in a strange land, which was a reference to Egypt. And Egypt would end up bringing them in bondage. They would be there for 400 years and they would get evil and treated. It would get worse and worse to the point where they're casting Hebrew boys into the river just to kill them. Uh, some people call that the iron furnace, that time of, of their history, whatever you want to call it, but that's what was going on. God eventually will judge Egypt. He'll bring the children of Israel out. But before that, Stephen here is mentioning Joseph would be elevated in Egypt. God would orchestrate this dearth in the land to get Israel and all of his house down to Egypt to be kept alive by Joseph, this picture of Christ, who Jacob thought was dead all the time because his sons had lied to him. 
I'm, I'm going to move fast here, and then we're going to bring this all together. But next in verses 17 through 41, I know this is a lot to read, but bear with me. Stephen talks about Moses' role in their history. Look at what it says. But when the time of the promise drew nigh, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt, till another king arose, which knew not Joseph. The same dealt subtly with our kindred and evil and treated our fathers, so that they cast out their young children to the end they may not live. In which time Moses was born and was exceeding fair and nourished up in his father's house three months. And when he was cast out, Pharaoh's daughter took him up and nourished him for her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and in deeds. And when he was full 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him and avenged him that was oppressed and smote the Egyptian. For he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them, but they understood not. And the next day he showed himself unto them as they strove and would have set them at, at one again, saying, Sirs, ye are brethren, why do ye wrong one to another? But he that did his neighbor wrong thrust him away, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge over us? Wilt thou kill me as thou didst the Egyptian yesterday? Then fled Moses at this saying and was a stranger in the land of Midian, where he begat two sons." And when forty years were expired, there appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai an angel of the Lord in the flame of a fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he wondered at the sight as he drew near. To behold it, the voice of the Lord came unto him, saying, I am the God of thy fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses trembled and durst not behold. Then said the Lord to him, Put off thy shoes from thy feet, for the place where, there, where thou standest is holy ground. I, I have seen... I have seen the affliction of my people, which is in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and am come down to deliver them, and now come, I will send thee into Egypt. This Moses, whom they refused, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge? The same did God send to be a ruler and deliver by the hand of the angel, which appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out after that he had showed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt, and in the Red Sea, and in the wilderness forty years. This is that Moses which said unto the children of Israel, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me. Him shall ye hear. This is he that was in the church in the wilderness with the angel which spake to him in the Mount Sinai and with our fathers who received the lively oracles to give unto us to whom our fathers would not obey, but thrust him from them and in their hearts turned back again to Egypt saying unto Aaron, Make us gods to go before us, for as this Moses which brought us out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what is become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered sacrifice unto the idol and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Oh, i got to stop there. I'm getting too excited. <laughs> Stephen, he speaks of a promise in verse 17. It's the promise that God spoke of to Abraham in verses 6 and 7 that they would, while they would go into bondage, they would be brought out after their time in Egypt. God would bring them into the land of Canaan, the land of promise. In verse 32, while Moses was at the burning bush, he heard God say unto him, I am the God of thy fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. Why is that significant? Because Moses is being called by the same God who called Abraham before there was a law and a temple. 
or a tabernacle in the case of Moses. And this same God would say through Moses to the children of Israel in verse 37, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me, him shall ye hear. So this is important to Stephen's answer because he shows how Moses was looking for one to come someday who would be the prophet. He would be the prophet of God. The council, they're accusing Stephen of misrepresenting Moses. But Stephen, he's showing, no, I'm agreeing with Moses. Moses said there was a prophet on the way, and ultimately he's going to tell him, that's who Jesus is. And so he's building up to this. He's saying, I'm not against Moses for crying out loud. Amen. Some of you know what I'm talking about. It's like, good night. I never said that. And so he's letting them know, I'm not against Moses. Moses said that Jesus was going to arrive one day. In verse 38, Stephen emphasizes how he's talking about the same Moses. They charge him with blaspheming. That same Moses, he said a prophet, was on the way. That same Moses who received the lively oracles at Mount Sinai, which Stephen is saying it was the living Word of God. They're lively. Moses, who received the law, was looking forward to the Messiah one day. And Stephen is saying, Moses, in whom you have put your trust, he looked for Jesus. Moses, who you thrust, who when they were in the wilderness, they thrusted him away from them, and they turned back in their hearts to Egypt and and were led into idolatry. This same Moses... And he's trying to get them to see, I'm not blaspheming Moses. Verses 40 and 41, they go into idolatry. They make these gods. These are the gods that brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And as we read verses 17 through 41, at what point did Moses blaspheme Moses or blaspheme the temple or blaspheme the law? Answer, none. He hasn't blasphemed anything or anybody. And so these charges against him, obviously, they're false. In verses 42 through 50, Stephen quickly highlights the period of the prophets and the kings. Look at what it says. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, O ye house of Israel, have ye offered to me slain beasts and sacrifices by the space of 40 years in the wilderness? The answer is no. Yea, ye took up the tabernacle of Molech, and the star of your god Rephim, figures which ye made to worship them, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, as he had appointed, speaking unto Moses that he should make it according to the fashion that he had seen, which also our fathers that came after brought in with Jesus into the possession of the Gentiles, whom God drave out whom God drave out before the face of our fathers unto the days of David, who found favor before God and desired to find a tabernacle for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. Howbeit the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet. Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What house will ye build me, saith the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Hath not my hand made all these things? So we see how Israel in their history they plunge deeper into idolatry. Let's not forget what Deuteronomy 32 said, speaking of Israel. 
Deuteronomy 32, verses 15 through 19, but Jeshuron waxed fat, which is another word for the children of Israel here. They, it, it says, and they kicked. Thou art waxen fat, thou art grown thick, thou art covered with fatness, which means they were blessed. And it says, then he forsook God, which made him, and lightly esteemed the rock of his salvation. They provoked him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations provoked they him to anger. They sacrificed unto devils, not to God. To gods whom they knew not. To new gods that came newly up. Whom your fathers feared not. Of the rock that begat thee, thou art unmindful. And hast, God, and hast forgotten God that formed thee. And when the Lord saw it, he abhorred them because of the provoking of his sons and his daughters. And in verses 42 and 43 here, Stephen, he quotes Amos, at least portions of Amos chapter 5, verses 25 and 26. And he does so to show how Israel just went off the rails crazy in their rejection of God. They worship Molech. You understand Molech is the God which you would put your children through the fire? I mean, this is sick. God brought them out. God delivered them, and this is what they go to? All right. Now, don't let verse 45 confuse you here. It's, it speaks of Jesus. It's, it's a reference to Joshua. Uh, one thing you got to know about Luke is, is he really referenced the Septuagint a lot, and so that's a Greek um, writing of the Old Testament. So Joshua and Jesus are the same. And so Jesus in Greek is the same as Joshua in Hebrew. And so that's why this says Jesus. It's not a reference to Jesus Christ. It's a reference to Joshua. You'll see the same thing in Hebrews 4.8. At the end of verse 45, Stephen makes a reference to the expansion of the kingdom under the reign of David. It lasted through the reign of Solomon. God was fulfilling His promise that He was going to give them a land from the Mediterranean Sea to the river Euphrates, which He did. And in verse 47, Stephen brings up the temple Solomon built. And, and now... Remember, Stephen's answering the charges, and he was accused of blaspheming the temple, so he's bringing up the temple. And that temple was destroyed by the Babylonians, but it was rebuilt after the captivity of Judah. And they are accusing him of blaspheming this temple, and they hated how he preached that Jesus foretold of its destruction. Then in verse 48, Stephen gives his famous statement, and we talked earlier in our series how this is made, is interesting, this is a Grecian who is making this observation. It is somebody who is from the synagogues, somebody who understood a little bit deeper than those who were stuck in Jerusalem and idolized that temple, that God does in fact inhabit the praise of His people. Amen. That God does not need to dwell in some temple up on a temple mount in Jerusalem, but God is able to be with His people. And so he, he makes this famous statement, How be it the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands. And why? Because God made the things that made the temple. So God's not impressed. I made the gold. Overlay it with gold if you want, but I made the gold. Why is God impressed? And, and obviously, this would have enraged the council. I covered at the beginning of last week, the temple had become an idol. They worshiped that building. There's still people guilty of that kind of thing today. I don't care that our doctrine is changing. We love this building. And you just continue in your sin under bad doctrine because you won't leave because of some building. How silly. How silly. We need a new building. I'm getting to where I don't care if we throw gravel on the ground and throw up some sides and a roof. 
we need a new building. See, that's where you should have say, said amen. But what happens is we get an image in our mind and go, no, that's stupid. We don't want to do that. Why? God doesn't dwell in this building. We are the building. Whoop. All right. I forgot. I'm not preaching. So this is going to infuriate them even further. In the back of his point, Stephen is quoting from Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2. And now in verses 51 through 53, Stephen brings it all home. And listen to this altar call. Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. Ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the disposition of angels, and have not kept it. Hey, you talk about a drop the microphone statement, this is it. And if he could have, he would have dropped the mic and walked out. This isn't how you, you know, build a church. That's what they'll tell you. Interesting, he calls them uncircumcised in heart. God gave you the the covenant of circumcision. It never reached your heart. Is there a time for sharp preaching? Is there a time for open rebuke? Yes. That's what I see this as. But as we have seen in the Bible... It's always to the religious crowd. It is those who have openly rejected God and claim themselves to have the truth. But we don't find this kind of preaching toward the ignorant, the indifferent, or those who are seeking truth. What am I saying? We need discernment on how much grace or how much salt to use. We need to be wise. Now, this is a great sermon on a number of levels. And I covered all that quickly. Like I said, we could have spent maybe a year or two there, and you know we could have. (laughs) This is a great sermon. I call this a biblical beatdown. You know, I always tell you you don't have to to browbeat people. He just browbeat them. He smacked them with the Bible. Stephen demonstrated here how well he knew the Word of God. He's quoting the Word of God through it. He's giving them their their history. Stephen is showing, I I know the Word of God and I know the history of our people. And it's important to take note of how Stephen stayed with the Word of God. His sermon is laced with the Word of God. And this is necessary because the Word of God is what is quick and powerful. Not our opinions and not our philosophy. Stephen has also just shown how he's not against Moses, he's not against the law, and he's not against the temple. But he wants them to see how God's purpose through it all, through all of their history, was to show them there's one coming who is the fulfillment of the law, who is a type of Moses, who is the greater tabernacle, the greater building. And he's trying to show them these things, but they, they just continued in their sins. He's showing how Christianity, it is not contrary to the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. It's not contrary to. And he's showing this. You say we're anti-Moses, and yet you never kept Moses. You see what Stephen's saying? 
You say we're contrary to temple worship, but God said a temple cannot contain Him. You say we are contrary to the law, and yet the law pointed to the prophet. And you missed them. So what's Stephen getting at? Hey, get it now. Stephen's saying, you never submitted. You turned against Joseph. You sold him. You turned against Moses. You thrust him away. And in your heart, you turned back to Egypt. You failed at Mount Sinai. You failed in the wilderness. You rejected the law of God. You corrupted the house of God. You persecuted the prophets of God that were sent unto you. You had the land. You had the law. You had the temple. And none of it did you any good. God sent you deliverers and you hated them. You didn't want Joseph. You didn't want Moses. You didn't want the prophets. You're just like your fathers. You're stiff-necked. You're uncircumcised in heart. And you always resist the Holy Ghost. Woo! You understand how powerful this council was? He's at least before 70 people. I wouldn't be surprised if there's a lot more this day. They're itching for the day to put one of them to death. The prophets told you of the coming of the just one, your Messiah. Psalm 85.10, mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Fulfilled in Christ. John 1.17, for the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. But what did you do with Christ? You betrayed Him and you murdered Him. God gave you the living Word, but you never kept it. And the reason you don't like Jesus is because you don't like God. And you don't like His Word. (laughs) Stephen's saying this, if Joseph was here, if Moses was here, if the prophets were here, if Abraham was here, they would be Christian. And guess what? They don't like Stephen either. Stephen has just shown through the power of the Holy Spirit how Jesus is not a deviation from the Old Testament into some cultic sect in Israel, but that Jesus is the one that the children of Israel should naturally embrace as their Messiah. Are you still rejecting Christ tonight? If you are, it's because you're still the enemy of God. You think you're smart enough. Hey, come on now. You think you're still good enough to please God on your own. You think you're strong enough. You're not. And I would tell you, stop being so stiff-necked. See Christ as the only way of salvation. Believe His Word. Hear His preachers. You might be thinking, well, I am a believer. So this doesn't really apply to me. Wait just a minute. Believers can resist the Holy Ghost. Why else are we told not to grieve and to quench the Holy Spirit? Believers can resist God's Word too. And believers can resist God's messengers as well. Marriages are not right because you don't want to do things God's way. Homes are a mess because you don't want God's design. 
Children are in rebellion because they do not want to submit to God. Maybe you're running from God because you're still resisting God's law. Maybe you're living in sin because God's Word isn't a priority in your life. Maybe you hate the preacher because you're not right with God. Maybe you don't like the church because you're living against God. Maybe you just need to get your heart right with God tonight. Maybe you need to stop resisting the Holy Ghost. Maybe you need to stop roasting the preacher. Maybe you need to start keeping the law of God again. Maybe you need to see church for how the Lord sees it. Maybe you need to return to your first love. Let's pray.